There was a fishing company in the 1980s that wanted to expand their codfish market beyond the east coast of the United States where they were located. The west coast became their target market. They first tried shipping cod in large freezers but found that the codfish lost their flavor by arrival time. Then the company tried shipping cod live in saltwater tanks, but when they arrived, the fish were mushy and soft. Then an employee of the company came up with a bright idea. Into the shipping tank with live codfish, they inserted the natural enemy of the cod, the catfish. During the transcontinental journey, the codfish swam full time trying to escape the catfish. And they arrived on the West Coast fresh, strong, and meaty in better shape than when they left. Today, of course, we use air freight, but that was then. As people, we like to be comfortable, but God wants us to be strong. So in his love, God places each of us in a tank with a God-appointed catfish to keep us alive, fresh, and growing. Now, don't look at your wife or husband or roommate. Okay, I'm not talking about that. I'm speaking of challenges that each one of us have in our life, brought by circumstances or people. Opposition not designed to make us miserable, but to, to make us stronger. The same principle we experience as individuals, we also experience as a church. As a corporate entity, a community of believers, we do and we will experience challenges. Opposition, not to harass us, though we may feel harassed from time to time, but to make us stronger. We're gonna continue in our series in the book of Acts today, which is the story of the beginnings of the church. And one aspect the followers of Jesus experienced on a daily basis was something called opposition. Opposition, in their tank was the enemy, a catfish designed to make them stronger. But before we get into the specifics, easy for me to say, specifics of opposition, I wanna ask some questions about the description of the church. What kind, today the, the title of the sermon is what kind? What kind of church was this and what kind of church are we to be? Four basic questions, what kind of church, what kind of life were they promoting, what kind of price were they prepared to pay, and what kind of response? And what can we learn today? I'd like you to turn with me to Acts 5. Acts the fifth chapter. We're gonna read uh, this in sections today. We're gonna, we're gonna start with 12 to 16. It's on page 886 in the Bible in the rack in front of you if you wanna find it there. Acts 5, and we're gonna start with verse 12 through 16. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as they passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. What kind of church? What kind of church was this? What were they experiencing? And by asking what kind of a church it was then, what should our church be like today? What elements should be present in every church since we are the continuation of the church in the book of Acts? 
first characteristic is something called supernatural, supernatural. It says the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders of people. The supernatural was part of the early church. These were things that could not mathematically be quantified or scientifically explained. It was a fact that God was at work and it was beyond human control or power. They said God is at work. God is doing something. It wasn't we're doing this great thing. It says God is doing something. Now there are two questions I want to ask and these are in your notes in the program. Number one, what is happening in our church that can be explained only by the presence of God's Holy Spirit? What is happening in our church that can be explained only by the presence of God's Holy Spirit? In other words, it's God's work. And secondly, what are we attempting that can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit? Is there anything that sets us apart from any other organization out there? Now, you all work out in the community, in hospitals and schools and technology and service industries, many other ways. But the question is, is there anything that makes this church or the Church of Jesus Christ in Eau Claire unique and different or set apart from all of those other human institutions? Because this is a divine institution where the work of God is to be done. The only difference is the presence and power of God by his Holy Spirit. The supernatural. People get spooked and they say, ooh, that's that weird stuff. Don't, don't go beyond this. You know what? This was what God did from the beginning. We ought to expect God to do the supernatural. What kind of church? First of all, supernatural. Secondly, it was a worshiping church. In verse 12, it says, all believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. How many of you have ever been to Jerusalem? Anybody been to Jerusalem? Okay, we need to take a trip to Jerusalem, to Israel. We, we, we do, I'm serious. We need to do it. Do it. Um, Judy and I had an opportunity to go there in 2008. <laughs> 2008, whatever, whatever year it was. I'll never forget the sun was coming out. We, we had traveled all night and day and we came out. The sun was just coming up. We were on the east side of Jerusalem looking down on the city when the sun rose. The incre- this wall, you see pictures of this wall. That was it incredible. That was the one wall of Solomon's, besides Solomon's colonnade. It's a huge thing. But I'll never forget the view of that and thinking, wow, this thing has been here like forever. Well, these believers were meeting on Solomon's colonnade, it was, a, it was an outer court that ran the length of the east side of the temple. And they met there for corporate worship, large group worship. What did they do? Say, what did they do? He said they worship. What did they do? Well, they practiced the biblical expressions of worship that we find in the Old Testament, which were their scriptures at the time. They would sing, they would clap hands, they would raise hands, they would shout, they would dance, make joyful noise, they'd play skillfully on instruments like drums, cymbals, trumpets, stringed instruments like bass and guitar and those kinds of things. Well, they didn't actually have those in those days, but whatever their instruments were, they used them to accompany these expressions of worship. Worship to God. Now, worship was the focus and God was the focus of worship. We are a worshiping people and our our whole life is to be a worship to God. But in a corporate sense, when we get together, to sing, clap hands, and raise hands, and dance, and make a joyful noise, praising God, worshiping God. We declare his works, his person. We rejoice, we're in joy, we're in awe. And that's what we're called to do in corporate worship. And there's just something about getting together, doing it together that's exciting. I don't know if you've ever been 
in a huge stadium watching a game with about four of you there. Okay. It used to be that way when, you know, depending on what the sport was. Contrast that with going into a stadium with 70,000 fanatic fans that are screaming about the game. Okay. There's something that you can do is you can really enter in when people are excited and engaged. Now, I'm not saying that all of you should be screaming and engaged and jumping up and down, whatever. Some of you guys are introverts and you'd be really self-conscious doing that. Some of you are a little more demonstrative. But bear in mind that one of the reasons that, that we are to get together for worship is it encourages us to enter and engage and focus on God. This is not a concert. This is not a, a performance. This is us working together, the worship team prompting and we're joining together to worship God. And the focus is God, and we are to be a worshiping church, worshiping. The focus is not fellowship, although we do fellowship between, we have you shake hands and we talk, but basically we're talking about worship. What kind of church is described by the word community? Let us see, community. In, in 246 it said they broke bread in their homes and ate together, and in 542 it says day after day in the temple courts from house to house. They met in the temple in a large group, but they also met in homes, in connect groups. Actually, they probably weren't called connect groups, but they, they ate together, they prayed for one another, they studied the word together. They had face-to-face -face relationships. Some of the feedback we're getting about connect groups is that people are saying, you know, I've seen these people for 20 years. We'll say, we'll say 20 years. We've seen these people for years and we've said hi, we've shook, shaken hands and we greet one another. Now I'm in a group and I get to know them and now, we, now I can actually talk to them, I'm getting to know them because we're meeting in community. I'm getting to know people relationally. And that's the power of community. And every person ought to be involved in community, in community. They, had, they, they chose face-to-face -face relationships. And powerful things happen when you are in community. And one of the most incredible things about our connect groups is most of them are meeting in homes. Most of our connect group meets, meet in homes. There's, it's different when you're in a home than in church. Most churches have crowds but they don't have community. That's, that's the priority that we have right now is developing community. If you're not in a connect group, January, sign up. This is not a promo, but Damien will buy me lunch for that. Okay. Amen. Relationships, finding a place to, be gone, to, to, to belong. What kind of church were they? They were respected, letter D. In verse 13, it says, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. It's kind of an odd statement. They, knew, they, they respected him, but they didn't want to join him. Just, what is that all about? Well, Christianity from the very beginning was regarded as a sect of Judaism. That's why the Roman government, by and large, refused to intervene. And it allowed the church, especially once outside of Jerusalem, they let it, let it go. The Romans gave Jews the freedom of religion. So why were these people so respected? Because they were authentic. They had integrity. They cared for one another in one word, love. Love. Our goal as a church is not to gain respect. I mean, I, I, I would love to have people respect our church and respect and say those are great people. But our goal is not to gain, gain respect. Our goal is to love one another and love the community. One another in the community. And the reason the church gained so much traction in the early years is it demonstrated love and respect and genuine concern for people. In fact, we find in the third century in, in the city of Rome, there was a plague that hit. 
And, and what happened is that everybody scattered. They stayed away from anybody of the plague except the Christians. The Christians reached out and at their own risk of getting the plague themselves, and many did and died, they reached out and they cared for and loved the people that were sick. That, that plague brought more people to Jesus Christ and, and, and catapulted the Christian faith into a whole different level because they loved We heard last Sunday how Christians in Egypt, and many of you saw the, the video or the, the pictures of, of the uh, Coptic Christians on the beach in Egypt, uh, from Egypt, and they were in Libya, uh, beheaded by ISIS terrorists. And when, when their parents and their families were interviewed back in Egypt, they, they expected this hatred and retribution and revenge and whatever, and what they said was, we forgive them. And literally, hundreds and thousands of Muslims streamed to those Christian churches. This is what Terry Law was talking about last week. Streamed to those churches because they had been raised in this culture of revenge and hatred. And, and they said, I want a religion that teaches love and forgiveness. The power of love in the church of Jesus Christ, still today, that's what they're looking for. People can disagree with their beliefs and practices, but they will never take offense at genuine love. They respected them because they loved. What kind of church? It was a growing church, let it read. Verse 14 it says, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. There was constant, consistent growth. People were coming to belief in, in Christ. A, a growing church is a pattern, it's the norm. Whether a church is 50 or 5,000, it ought to be adding or multiplying people, new believers. And we look at, look at are we growing? Are, are we adding to this church? You know, how, do, how does a church grow? Well, church grows in four different ways, primarily. The first way is biological growth. Uh, parents, people get married, they have babies, and you add babies. So all of a sudden, you've got this burgeoning nursery that comes, and, you, and we can grow that way. There's transfer growth. People move into the community looking for a church, a fellowship. They transfer in. There's returning growth. Did you know that 50%, about 50% of Christians in America are not unchurched? They're unchurched. And a lot of reasons for that, but they may have had a bad experience. They got hurt. Something happened to them. But for some reason, they are detached from the body of Christ, and they're unchurched. And God wants us to reach those people that have been hurt by Christianity or Christians or church, whatever that reason, and say, bring them in. We can, that's called returning growth. And then there's conversion growth, new church, new believers, people that have never known Jesus Christ before and come to Jesus Christ. And every church ought to have all of those kinds of growth happening. Finally, what kind of church? It should be a healing church. Talked about verse 16 says, the, the sick and those tormented by evil spirits. And we're talking about people who are physically sick or emotionally sick, psychologically sick, spiritually sick, demonized. When Jesus was, was on earth, and we read about this, we spent last year looking at the life of Jesus, he healed the people through his physical presence and his physical being on earth. It was his physical body that was present, and he'd reach out and touch people. He'd speak healing, he would touch people. 
Now his agency of healing was a group of people. His new body, the church. We are his body. We are the agency to reach out and heal and touch people. The church back then was a place of healing. The church today is also a place of healing. We have people all around us broken and wounded, tormented by evil and evil spirits. God calls us to be a a place of healing and deliverance. And it's hearts and minds, but it's also bodies. All can receive healing. James 5 says, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. He says, are you sick? Is, is there someone you know that is sick? Do you want to receive healing? I believe and we believe that, that we can pray and God will answer and God will heal. And we want to be available to pray for all kinds of healing, not just spiritual and emotional and psychological, but also physical, physical healing. Note that in James 5, the initiative for being prayed for was taken by the person that needed the prayer. So if you believe that, don't ever leave a service if you need prayer for someone else, for yourself, because we believe that God answers prayer. What kind of church? It was supernatural, it was worshiping, it had community, it was respected, it was growing, and it was healing. Well, let's look at what kind of life. What kind of life? We're gonna look at the next parts of that. I'm gonna read quickly, uh, because we don't have a lot of time. We're gonna read the next, next few verses, starting with verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They saw this incredible church and what God was doing, they said, I'm jealous. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began teaching the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So he went back and reported, we have found the jail secured but with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled and wondering what could have come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make this man guilty of this man's blood. Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. Then he talks about the fact that God of our fathers raised Jesus. You had him killed. We are witnesses of these things. If we understand how the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, viewed Jesus, they viewed Jesus as the illegitimate son of Mary. Israel was was a small nation. When he came to the forefront, they said, well, in John 8, they talk about this and say, we don't even know who your father is. 
there was this, this cloud over Jesus because God was his father. And it was a scandal. And he was also from Nazareth. And they didn't have any regard for people from Nazareth. He says, can anything come, good come from Nazareth? Then his teachings drove them mad because he condemned religious and he forgave sinners. And after putting up for three years with this nonsense, they had finally gotten rid of him. They got the Romans to execute him, do their dirty work, and they thought he was done. And then these guys come back and say, he's alive. Okay, you can imagine their frustration. So they said, we're not going to let you talk about this. We're going to put you in prison. Of course, it didn't work. God breaks him out of prison. This is, this is better than the great escape, the escape from Alcatraz or the Shawshank Redemption. Because it was supernatural, God broke him out. This was supernatural. And then they were teaching. And the question is this. When they came back to teach, what was, what was their teaching? In verse 20, it says they were teaching the full message of this life. What was the full message of this life? What kind of life is, were they talking about? When we look back on the book of Acts, the, all of their teaching was centered on Jesus Christ. It's all Jesus. Jesus was crucified he was buried, he was resurrected. It's, it was always Jesus. Jesus is the center. And they said he is life, life. Life is used 36 times in the New Testament. It's a synonym you use for Jesus. John 1, 4 says, in him was life and that life was the light of men. First John 1, 1 to 2 says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The center of their teaching was always Jesus. It was always Jesus Christ, the author and giver of this life. He said, this life isn't found in any religion or acts or deeds we do. It's only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what kind of life the person of Jesus. And it was also called the abundant life. Let's move quickly here. The abundant life. John 10, 10 says, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. Doesn't mean an easy life. It's not like a codfish relaxing, floating in the tank, happy and fat, mushy. The abundant life means challenges, strength, energy, and accomplishment, health and life. What kind of life was he talking about? Obedient, obedient life. Verse 29 says, we must obey God rather than man. That used to be kind of an abstract concept, especially in America, because, because we were a Christian nation. We live in a country that was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics based on the Bible, the Word of God. Now, make, make no mistake, no matter how hard people try to rewrite our history, a careful examination of our Constitution, of our Bill of Rights and original writings and statements by our founding fathers presents an overwhelming case that America was founded on Christian principles. And many of the founders who wrote and participated in that were Christian ministers, believe it or not. Study that. I, there's a whole, whole series of things I'd like to bring in here at some point to be able to give us that foundation because people are, have been, they've been rewriting history since the early 1900s, trying to get, you know, get that to be not so. It, it's, it's not unusual. I don't know if you, when you read through the Old Testament, they tried to rewrite the history back then too. So it, it just happens. We, we eliminate the things we don't like and just rewrite it, you know. Anyway, that's another thing. But um, for 200 years, Christian values permeated our, our, our country. 
with the exception of the battle over slavery and the battle over civil rights. That's changed, though. The, the laws of our country are losing moral foundation that is based in the Word of God. And we are increasingly faced with the question, do I obey God or do I obey man? What do I do? What do I do with this? Some of you have followed the story of the florist, the baker, and the wedding planner. Um, when following their conscience, they refused to participate in a same-sex wedding. And all three of, them, three of them have faced persecution in the form of losing everything they have. And they chose to obey God rather than man. The case of the pharmacy in Olympia, Washington, that refused to dispense Plan B, which is an abortifacient, an after-pregnancy drunk that would, that would terminate the pregnancy. One, through all these court cases, the, the primary alliance defending freedom uh, attorney, Kristen Wagoner, was on my board with Church Awakening. And I've been able to talk to her about some of the things that have happened and transpired in the, in the journey of that to the Supreme Court. To obey God or do we obey man? It's right in the middle of America today. So what did Peter and John do? They obeyed God. What happened? They got thrown in jail. They got thrown in jail. Increasingly, we're going to face the same kinds of choices in America. So what kind of life are we called to? It's centered on Jesus. It's an abundant life. And it's an obedient life. Now, this kind of church, this kind of life had a price. I want to take the third section of this passage and talk about what kind of price are we talking about. Verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious, wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin, ordered that the men be put outside for a while. Then he addressed them, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, or origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged, then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Opposition. Opposition. The price we pay, being the church of Jesus Christ, to make a difference is opposition. What happens when you stand up for the truth? Everybody loves you, right? Not so much. How many of you remember the story of Aaron Brockovich? Aaron Brockovich made it into a movie, yes. The electric utility companies. Electric utility companies in Southern California were polluting residential neighborhoods, causing extraordinarily high cases of certain cancers, illnesses, and miscarriages. Aaron discovered the truth and stood up for the truth. What happened? Everybody did not love her. She had intense opposition. She was vilified. She was fought, and she was nearly destroyed. What kind of price did she pay? It was a steep price that she paid. But eventually, she did win. Two years ago, we watched, we were in a different state at the time, we watched a fascination at the battle you had here in the state of Wisconsin where Governor Scott Walker stood up for law and stood up for truth and he was attacked. 
his parents and family attacked, the whole the bunch of th- hired thugs and bullies nearly shut down the entire government in the state of Wisconsin. He had to win election, a recall election, and an election again. And I don't know what your opinion was of where he stood, but he stood on truth and he stood on law and he paid a price, huge price. When we become the church, like the New Testament church, when we are supernatural, worshiping a community, we're respected, growing and healing, when we tell the people the full message of life, wherever God is using us, Satan will oppose us. We have opposition. So what is his strategy? We need to know his strategy. We can see that here. We just have a little bit of time to look at this. His opposition strategy, first of all, is to attempt to pick off or destroy leadership. That's what he did. He tried to remove these guys from the, from the scene. Neutralize, get them out of there. How does, he, how does he do that in our churches and our, our lives today? He uses fear, trying to get us to be afraid. What's going to happen? Fear is the opposite of faith. He'll use discouragement. When you're going through difficult times or opposition, you say, where is God? Is, is anything good happening? Are we wasting our time? And there are people in every city in America who are, and, and please bear this out, that are attempting to cast spells and place curses on this or any Christ-centered church trying to neutralize what we're doing, okay? There is a tangible opposition out there of the enemy using people to try to discourage us. Discouragement is one of the most used tools to, de- to, to defeat the church of Jesus Christ. Then there's criticism. Criticism. You know, every baseball team needs a batter who always bats 400, can play every position, who never makes an error. But no one has figured out how to get him to lay down his hot dog and come out and play the game. We like to criticize, like to second guess. We like to, you know, Monday morning quarterback. Criticism. We're really, really good at it. Criticism kills. Kills morale. Kills the spirit. And criticism can destroy, can destroy a church. The fourth strategy is moral failure. And it's at epidemic proportions today. I encourage you to pray for your leadership. Then there's avoidance, running from responsibilities. The leaders who are afraid to make decisions, they don't want to confront issues because they want to just kind of keep the peace. Leaders living in fear, discouragement, dealing with criticism, avoiding making decisions, waffling and lose decisiveness. They're inactive. They, they avoid it. They're, they're neutralized and ineffective. We have to have leadership who deal with issues. Letter B is the attempt, second strategy, is to attempt to divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Bring division into the church. Disagreements that affect unity. Unity is absolutely critical. Those of you that are in connect groups know that we're studying the book Loving the Church. And one key phrase that we have to come out with is agenda harmony. Agenda harmony. The unity in the body of Christ. Agenda harmony that we are together focusing and we're in unity. How, how rare is unity? You know, unity is, is rare. In fact, in Psalm 133, it, it compares it to precious oil and dew on Mount Hermon. I thought, what does that mean? Well, precious oil would mean 
oil that is very expensive. Dew on Mount Hermon is very rare, very, very rarely happens. So unity is almost like having dew on Mount Hermon. It's just rare. And so basically that points a picture of, of a rare, valuable commodity that must be inside the church. There must be unity and harmony, agenda harmony where we're together that looks over, overlooks all those differences and, and finds common ground. Unity is precious and priceless. And it's indispensable to every team. Doesn't matter what you're doing. You have to have unity in the team. The third strategy of our opponent is to persecute or seduce the church. Persecute or seduce the church. Back here in the book of Acts, it was obviously started with persecution. Today, we, we're, we're moving towards that persecution, but first it's seduction. What do I mean by seduction? Seduction is the sneak attack. Seduction implies a transfer of loyalty, love, or will. And, and this change of thinking, change of values, change of affections. And seduction is subtle. It's a sneak attack. It's a sneak, sneak attack. The first instance of seduction in the Bible is in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. When Satan came to Eve and he said, Did God really say... Did God really say, there's this seductive thing of, did God really say, what are we basing all of our moral values and all the cultural issues on? People are asking questions. Oh, I don't know if God really said that. Are you sure he said that? Does the Bible really say that? Did God really say? It's the first seduction is, did God really say? Slowly, when that happens, we shift our love to God to other things. We shift our stand for right and wrong for open-minded tolerance. You know, there are, there are three sins that our culture will not accept. There are three sins our culture won't accept. Number one is murder. Second one is rape. And the third one is intolerance of others' beliefs or lifestyles. Intolerance, which, of course, intolerance means I won't allow you to do what's harmful to you. Tolerance is I don't give a rip what you do. I don't care about you. Different than love. Love says I love and I care about you very deeply. Intolerance of others' beliefs or lifestyle. And we have, instead of truth, we have relativism and subjective feelings. Begin to be squeezed. And slowly we get seduced into being something we no longer recognize as biblical Christianity. Some would call it cultural Christianity. Satan has been called a gradualist. A gradualist. You know, um, when we look at the difference between moral values in the 60s, before some of you were born, and where they are today, it was a whole different thing. And you could not imagine. Well, it hasn't happened overnight. It's happened incrementally, gradually, a little at a time. Someone said this, put it this way. They said, if you take a, take a frog and you throw him in a pot of boiling water, it'll jump out. But take that same frog and put it in cool water, and slowly heat it up to boiling, it will cook to death. It'll stay there. The, the change is so gradual, imperceptible, and that's what happens to our moral values and what's happened to America, slowly. This gradualism. Many parts of the American church have experienced a slow, gradual death. I, I gave the illustration two Sundays ago about what's happened in some of our main 
denominational churches. And I gave the illustration of the Presbyterian Church USA contrasted with the Southern Baptist Church. And the watershed issue was inerrancy of scriptures in the original autographs. We talked about it. If you, if you weren't here for that two Sundays ago, um, listen to it online. It's very important that we understand where the battle lines are. Because if we undermine the veracity and the truth of the Word of God, we got, did God really say that? We have nothing to stand on. Seduction. And we've been seduced. Seduction is first, then comes persecution. And we're seeing both today. What kind of response? Let's look at the response. Verse 41 to 42. I love this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They started by rejoicing and suffering. I know that doesn't sound good. Sounds like a, no, that doesn't fit together. Rejoicing and suffering. But the apostles had a, a cause worth suffering for. It was a cause worth dying for. People today are looking for a cause. This is especially true of millennials. And if we sugarcoat and undermine the truth and the veracity and the commitment that, that is required to follow Jesus, they'll say, that doesn't look like much of a cause. A cause worth dying for. Animal activists, it's preservation of animal life. Environmentalists saving the trees. Islamic extremists destroying other other religions by force and slaughter. We must have something worth dying for. And when we have a cause worth fighting for, suffering for, dying for, we exult in the fact of the cost. So rejoicing in suffering. Second, we see persistence in mission. They never stopped, they never slowed down. They persisted in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And finally, they said, we're going to obey God rather than man. We're going to obey God rather than man. What kind? The kind of church? The kind of life? The kind of price? And the kind of response? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who tells the story the way it is. And I pray, Lord Jesus, today that you would challenge us and continue to challenge us to be the church, not just this local church in this location, but the church scattered, the church in dispersion during the week. God, we, I pray that you give us a vision as to the, the breadth and, and, and extent and the level of influence that we have in the Chippewa Valley. Because it's not restricted to this building. In fact, if that's all our influence, and the, then we, we don't have much impact. But where we live and where we, where we interact with people in our communities, where we work, where we go to school, we have infinite opportunities of reaching. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that we would grasp a vision of we, the church, the body of Christ, and the vision and mission of what you've called us to do and be. And you would fill us with your Holy Spirit because without your supernatural power, we have nothing. So we submit ourselves to you now, Lord. And thank you 
In Jesus' name.